I love hearing the stories from the Israel pilgrimage group. It takes me back in memory. I was at an event last night where I heard people bragging about Brian Whitman. And I just sit back thinking about all the things that we learned from him in those moments. And I'm flash, flashing back to moments that I was in Israel. One of my favorite places was Bethlehem. Uh, there's the Church of the Nativity there. And those of you who know a little bit of history, St. Jerome had his come back to Jesus moment there. He was a little bit of a wayward bishop. God so revitalized him. He was the one used by God to translate the Holy Scriptures from Hebrew and Greek into uh, Latin, which we know as the Vulgate, which has influenced our Bible down to this day. Uh, Brian Whitbin himself had his come back to Jesus moment in Bethlehem underneath the stars on Christmas Eve. Can you imagine? What a place to come back to Jesus. But there is that one spot that really captures me as a Westerner. You come out from the Church of the Nativity and you make a left and you come to Stars and Bucks Cafe. <laughs> now, I doubt they've gotten permission to use this name, but I love this place. So, of course, I did a photo op there, and I went in and got my uh, cup of coffee, even though I didn't need another one. I had to have one at Stars and Bucks, and I got the cup to add to my collection. It was about a five- or seven-minute walk down the hill to the bus, and I was feeling good about my experience. We were just talking away, and I got on the bus, and I realized I didn't have my iPad. Now, my iPad had all of my notes from all the places we had toured. We were at the end of our tour. It had all my photos, and it also had access to all of my accounts. You know how that works. Panic. You know what it's like when you've lost something that has value to you? Now Chuck, in his hiking boots, is running up the hill to get back to the stars and bucks, because I'm sure somebody has taken my iPad. Walked around the corner, saw people mealing and drinking, and there it was sitting there on the counter. Oh, was I relieved. I was so glad I was in an Arabic country and not a Christian country, because that would have gone <laughs> in a minute in a Christian country. And in the words of a good Monty Python movie, and there was great rejoicing. We're in the midst of our series, Stories That Jesus Told, and the importance of story. Jesus used parables and metaphors and similes. It's made me realize that the natural is really mimicking the supernatural. The spiritual is not mimicking the natural, but the natural is mimicking the spiritual. Paul says it this way, the things that are seen are not real. But the things that are unseen are real. And Jesus took the natural things of everyday life and he put meaning into them so that we would see God laced in the activities of everyday life. Today's story is in the triad of three, of three lost things. It's probably the most well-known scripture in the Gospels. Someone has called it the gospel within the Gospels. If you had to reduce me to three chapters in Scripture that I would hold on to, one of them would be Luke 15, because the gospel is captured in this story. And our story today is the parable of the lost sheep. As you see in some of your Bibles, it's titled that way. I want to call it this. It's the parable of the outrageous shepherd, because the story is not really about the sheep. 
The story is about the unusual actions of a shepherd. And if we will look at it a little bit more deeply, we will see the very extravagant nature of God's love for us. So let's go to the text, take the story apart a little bit so that we understand it a bit more, what Jesus was saying. He's speaking in a different history, in a different time, and there's some things we need to pick up. So let's go to verses 3 and 4. We'll go right into the story. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, a hundred sheep, we're not much into animal husbandry here, so I need to give you some information on this. Some of you have dogs and some of you have cats. I see a few chicken owners in this place. I know there's some people that have horses, and I do know there's a sandwich member now who has goats. Um, It's kind of a growing husbandry culture, but you guys, does anybody have sheep here? Oh, good. I just, one time I could say, ask a question of a sandwich crowd, and you didn't have an answer, so that's good. Usually you guys do everything. It's amazing. Normally, a shepherd would have 20 to 200 sheep under his care. And rarely did he work alone. Shepherds worked in group. Those of you who just came back from Israel, you love seeing those pictures of maybe 10 sheep walking with one shepherd in the front and one in the back. Did you ever come across those? Oh, you didn't go to the places in Israel that I went to. Uh, But 20 to 200 wouldn't be considered a large flock. A lot of times when people read this, they compare the second story of the woman who loses one coin and say, one's about the wealthy and one's about the poor. Not really with this shepherd. It's in Jewish law that when you get to 300 sheep that it starts to be considered a little bit outrageous. So this is a a normal shepherd. Now, when you and I think sheep, we think cute, right? Little fluffy bundle of fleas and ticks. No. (laughs) But soft and cuddly, it brings a, a fun nature to us. We think about this shepherd going and finding his sweet sheep. Well, let me tell you, sheep were an economic reality in the biblical times. That was their currency. They wouldn't have that same sense of attachment. So when Jesus talks about affection for sheep, or when God has talked about as being the shepherd overlooking, it's a little bit different. Now, they love their sheep. Uh, We lived in Mali, as you know, for many years, and the Fulani are cow herdsmen that walk all over the place with their cows. Uh, the cows are their economic reality. It's their source of showing that they have power when you have lots of cows. But there is a little bit of an attachment there. They have this parable that says, you can laugh at a Fulani's wife, but don't laugh at his cow. <laughs> and I know some of you chicken raisers have become pescatarians in the process. You get attached to your animals in the process of life. But that's not happening in this context. This shepherd is caring, and he has to bring uh, his flock forward so he doesn't lose his wealth. Now, we could talk a little bit about the difference between a shepherd owner and a hireling, but we don't know who this is in this passage, so let's just leave that out of the text. There is one lost sheep. So let me just put it in straight terms. Lost sheep is equal to dead sheep. Sheep cannot defend themselves. Sheep were meant to be in community. Wow, there's a whole message here, pastors. I hadn't even thought about this when we were doing the hermeneutics. 
But when a sheep wanders off from the flock, it's in dangerous place. They're not equipped to care for themselves. They're expected to be cared for. Now, here's an interesting thing about shepherds. You expected to lose some of your sheep. A Palestinian shepherd, when he was given someone's flock to take care of, signed a contract or shook a hand on a contract that they only needed to return with 80% of the sheep. Because the expectation was some were going to get sick and die along the way and you would lose some to wild animals. And sheep do wander off. So only 80% would be coming back. So in all likelihood, if this man has 100 sheep, his duty is only to return with 80. Okay, already your minds are starting to stir. This would have all been common knowledge to the people. It's not common knowledge to us. It changes your implications in the story and what's happening here. And the shepherd immediately goes out. Now, my suggestion is he goes out at night because if you look at the literature on Palestinian shepherds, they count their sheep at 11 o'clock at night. You don't count them during the day. There's an urgency that takes the shepherd out. He's going to leave the 99 to go after the one in the night. When does this happen in Israel? Never. Never. This is, this is ridiculous. This story is already having people looking at Jesus saying it doesn't happen this way. For a shepherd to be flockless is to be as dead as for a sheep to be without a flock. Because if you lose your flock, if you put them up for the sake of um, the wolves coming into them, you could lose your whole livelihood. There's no way a shepherd is going to go after one. This is nonsense. This is, well, this is not Freakonomics. This is the opposite of Freakonomics. Those of you who are following Freakonomics on the internet, which puts everything about historical determinism and everything is designed by wealth, what the kingdom of God does is it comes and it turns Freakonomics on its head and says everything is about the love of God that turns the story upside down. You see, when we understand the context, Jesus' parables call us to look at our world in a completely different way. And his disciples would have been curious about what was happening, and certainly the Pharisees would have wondered what's going on. Let's go on in the parable. Jesus continues, verse 5, And when he has found it, the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, shepherds were good at tracking. They could look at hoof marks, they could look at excrement, they knew ways of determining where their sheep had come. In the night, he finds his sheep, he puts the sheep on his shoulders rejoicing. Uh, he's not saying, you stupid sheep, I told you not to leave the flock, this is what was going to happen to you. Uh, those of us who are father finger waggers, we know those times we've done that, right? Or behind the seat. I told you not to do that. Kids are hiding underneath the, the console. No, this shepherd comes in ridiculous fashion, puts the sheep up on his shoulders, rejoicing that he's found the one, having risked the 99. And not only does he rejoice, he comes back to his friends and neighbors and says, let's throw a party. I want, you, I want you to rejoice with me for one was lost and now he's found. Okay, so 
I want you to get this part right now because then we're going to move into the application of it. The most ultimate so what of this passage is the outrageous nature of the shepherd, which Jesus is using to point to God the Father, is that he goes through everything, every possible means, every bit of selfless leaving of his glory for the sake of making his love known to us. Our God is a rescuing God. Our God is one who loves to find the most marginalized and outlying person he can find in his love. In fact, there's a contrast that's being made here by Jesus as he tells the parable when he gives the punchline in verse 7. He says this, so I tell you, see some of the parables Jesus doesn't give us the implications, but here he does. So I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. Remember he says more joy. God is delighted that we're gathered here and we are part of the repentant crowd and that we're bringing worship for him. That brings a smile to his face. But he's more delighted for everyone in our community today who comes into relationship with him because they get pursued by the shepherd. This is God economics. Was it Goganomics? I don't know. We've got to start my own website now. See, God's concerned about those who haven't experienced His love. He's delighted we're here. We're sons and daughters. We're already in. But His heart beats, 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 beats for those who aren't in. This is why I'm passionate about what I do. This is why I'm passionate about empowering you. This is why I love bringing God's words to you, because God's word keeps saying it over and over. You've been rescued. Great news. But there's people out there that need to be rescued. All right, we would miss the whole point of the story if we leave it just there, because I purposely jumped over the context. Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Uh, tax collectors, you could put the word thieves. Sinners are those who are living openly immoral lives. These are the Zacchaeuses of the story. Jesus is with them. Uh, someone today would call them the losers. These are the losers of society. These are the ones who haven't risen up the ladder. They don't see it the way we see it. Now, we expect Jesus to be with them. We're not surprised because he was so winsome that he was called the friend of sinners. Now, I want you to get this this morning. This is really important. Jesus was the most holy person to walk on this earth. In fact, I will tell it this way. He was the only holy person to walk on this earth after Adam and Eve gave up their holiness. The only one. And yet, I know of no one who dislikes sin more than Jesus. Jesus would say to people who were caught in sin, go and sin no more. Jesus hated sin because of what it did to people. Jesus hated sin so much that he took it upon himself so that we wouldn't have to be the bearers of sin. Jesus has no place for sin in his life. There's no toleration. There's no accommodation to it. And yet Jesus has place for sinners. So when someone tells me you can't love the sinner but hate the sin, I'm telling you that's possible because Jesus did it. 
I can have disdain for the things that bring brokenness in this world and still love the people who are caught up in the things of the brokenness. That's what Jesus is doing. He's with these people. He's with them all the time. He came to seek and save the lost, not the healthy. He came to seek those who needed a doctor. Verse 2, there's another group. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. To be in contact with these impure, unholy people was to be guilty by association. It was to make yourself impure and to be unholy. To receive them and have a meal with them was simply outrageous to the Pharisees. They didn't have a space for hanging out for people like that. Uh, Pastor Nathan said it in the uh, prayer chapel this morning. I almost wanted to change my whole message, but he says, isn't it interesting? The Pharisees grumble over these sinners, but heaven rejoices when one turns back to God. Wow, that's almost the punchline of the story. Why didn't you tell me that this week? It would have saved me a lot of time. (laughs) Do you get it? The religious are grumbling. Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. The religious are about, what's in this for me? What do I get out of this? What are we letting those people into power? Start to talk like that after a while, too. (laughs) And someone said, that's true. Yeah, I've been with a lot of you at your deathbed. You get like what you were in your life. Heaven rejoices when one comes. You see, this parable isn't as much about the one sheep that is lost, but it's about the 99 rest of us who remain. Because Jesus gives the parable not for the lost, but he gives the parable for the Pharisees and the scribes. So this morning, my so what is simply this, you're one of two sheep. You're either one wandering or you're one of the 99. Here's the good news. God the Father, the shepherd loves both of you. And there was great rejoicing. So this morning, if you're still wandering, will you let the shepherd overtake you? Please. He doesn't want to wreck your life. He wants to put you on his shoulders. Wants to give you a new name. Wants to give you your identity back. Wants to give you your purpose. He wants to unleash you with his love on this world. Wherever you're at, just look up to the sky and go, bah. (laughs) He's looking for you. Not because he's mad at you, but he's mad for what sin has done to you. And more than anything, that it's separated you from his love.
to the rest of us scribes and Pharisees? Will we lay down our Phariseeism long enough to allow God's love to overtake us so that it overtakes the world? I'm not talking about not having standards. People immediately go there when they hear these kinds of things. I'm going to keep my standards for holiness. I'm going to keep my standards for what I believe is good decorum before God. I'm going to keep my standards for kingdom <laughs> principles. But I'm not going to judge the world based on those aspects. What I know is the wheat and the tares grow together. It's not my responsibility to pull out the tares. I'm supposed to simply keep passing out the growing of the wheat and to allow God to do His thing in His time. So you're saying, well, how do I know if I'm a Pharisee? Let me give you four words. Unforgiveness, bitterness, no, th this one has two, critical spirit, self-protectionism. If any of those are a part of how you respond to faith movements or to sin movements, you're probably a Pharisee. Here's the good news. God wants to redeem that as well. See, the good news is that God rescues us in spite of ourselves. The good news is also this. He will sanctify us in cooperation with ourselves when we allow Him to do His work. I came across this writing of Sir Richard of Chichester. He lived in 1197 to 1253. You'll remember him most for his phrase, know thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly. I think that was a great prayer in the movie The Faulkners or something. Yeah, one of those. What's that one? Oh, it was God's spell. Yeah. This is what he writes about the love of God. This so captured me that I wanted you to hear it. To know God is to love Him because the more we grasp, not merely in our minds, but also in our experience, who He is, what He has done for us, and more, the more our hearts will respond in love and gratitude. We love because He first loved us. Quote 1 John 4, 19. When we discover that the personal author of time, space, matter, and energy has for some incomprehensible reason chosen to love us to the point of infinite sacrifice, we begin to embrace the unconditional security we long for all our lives. God's love for us is spontaneous, free, uncaused, and undeserved. He did not set His love on us because we were lovable, beautiful, or clever. Because in our sin, we were unlovable, ugly, and foolish. He loved us because He chose to love us. He loved us because He chose to love us. As we expand our vision of our acceptance and security in Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us, we begin to realize that God is not the enemy of our joy, but the source of our joy. When we respond to this love, we become the people He has called us to be. By God's grace, we need to grow in love with Him in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our actions. You see, the more loved we will feel, 
the more free they'll have nothing to protect in their lives, we'll be able to give love out to others. And what God will do is secretly take the Pharisaic spirit away from us. We won't even know it. We will still feel like Pharisees, but one day someone will look at us and say, I see Jesus in you. But it all begins by being surrounded by His love. I'm not talking about just intellectually knowing, I'm about having it grip your heart and take part of everything who you are. Where He becomes the person of greatest worth. When we were first married, uh, we were getting prepared for one of those great vacations. Uh, we had the twins at that time, and Jordan was on his way, and I think we were going to the beach in Bethany or something, and we had our little Toyota completely packed. It's amazing what you can get in a car when you have little children. We used to just pull things out of there. It was just amazing, all the paraphernalia that we had. And as we were getting ready to leave Clark, New Jersey, we did our typical stop at Dunkin' Donuts, and we were going to get all prepared for this trip. And when I came out with the coffee, Ingrid held her uh, diamond ring up to me, and there was no diamond in it. And she had that look on her face of just total panic. Uh, that was an expression that I worked really hard for when I was in college, and it was precious to her, and it was all about the declaration of our covenant together. So we drove back home, and we looked all over to see if we could find where it had fallen off, and um, we couldn't find it. So we went off to vacation and uh, had a good time there, but I'm sure it was in the back of her mind. Uh, as soon as I had a chocolate donut, I'd moved on to the next activity, so. A <laughs> uh, couple months later, right before Jordan was going to be born, you know how you get that nesting thing as an expectant mother? She was cleaning away in our house, and she was sweeping behind one of the cabinet, uh, dressers in our bedroom, and all of a sudden, this diamond came rolling across the floor. Nothing lost in love. She came downstairs. She was so excited. She had it in her hands, and I looked at her being the loving husband I had. I said, let's sell it now before you lose it again. <laughs> she still holds that over. I mean, she still reminds me of that from occasion to occasion. She was delighted. At the same time, she was a worship leader in our church, and we had just learned this new praise song that we'd been singing for a couple months. It goes like this. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds, and nothing I desire compares to you. In those months, she learned with not having a diamond how much precious, more precious God's love for her was than that diamond. People, you are precious to your Creator and Redeemer. Let Him wrap you up in love today. Amen.